Chapter 2 of The Tale of Terror, A Study of the Gothic Romance by Edith Burkhead. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia. Chapter 2 The Beginnings of Gothic Romance. To Horace Walpole, whose Castle of Otranto was published on Christmas Eve, 1764, must be assigned the honour of having introduced the Gothic Romance and of having made it fashionable. Diffident as to the success of so wild a story in an age devoted to good sense and reason, he sent forth his medieval tale, disguised as a translation from the Italian of Onofrio Moralto by William Marshall. It was only after it had been received with enthusiasm that he confessed the authorship. As he explained frankly in a letter to his friend Mason, quote, It is not everybody that may in this country, play the fool with impunity. That Walpole regarded his story merely as a fanciful, amusing trifle is clear from the letter he wrote to Miss Hannah Moore, reproving her of putting so frantic a thing in the hands of a Bristol milkwoman who wrote poetry in her leisure hours. The Castle of Otranto was but another manifestation of that admiration for the Gothic, which had found expression fourteen years earlier in his miniature castle at Strawberry Hill with its old armour and, quote, lean windows fattened with rich saints, quote. The word Gothic, in the early 18th century, was used as a term of reproach. To Addison, Siena Cathedral was but a barbarous building, which might have been a miracle of architecture had our forefathers, quote, only been instructed in the right way, end quote. Pope, in his preface to Shakespeare, admits the strength and majesty of the Gothic, but deplores its irregularity. In Letters on Chivalry and Romance, published two years before the Castle of Otranto, Hurd pleads that Spencer's Fairy Queen should be read and criticised as a Gothic, not a classical poem. He recognises the right of the Gothic to be judged by its own laws. When the 19th century is reached, the epithet has lost all tinge of blame and has become entirely one of praise. From the time when he began to build his castle in 1750, Walpole's letters abound in references to the Gothic, and he confesses once, quote, In the heretical corner of my heart, I adore the Gothic building. End quote. At Strawberry Hill, the hall and staircase were his special delight, and they probably formed the background of that dream in which he saw a gigantic hand in armour on the staircase of an ancient castle. When Dr. Burney visited Walpole's home in 1786, he remarked on the striking recollections of the castle of Otranto brought to mind by, quote, the deep shade in which some of his antique portraits were placed, and in the lone sort of look of the unusually shaped apartments in which they were hung, end quote. We know that in idle moments, Walpole loved to brood on the picturesque past, and we can imagine his falling asleep after the arrival of a piece of armour for his collection, with his head full of plans for the adornment of his cherished castle. His story is but an expansion of this dilettante's nightmare. His interest in things medieval was not that of an antiquary, but rather that of an artist who loves things old because of their age and beauty. In a delightfully gay letter to his friend George Montague, referring flippantly to his appointment as deputy ranger of Rockingham Forest, he writes, after drawing a vivid picture of a Robin Hood reform, quote, Visions, you know, have always been my pasture, and so far from growing old enough to quarrel with their emptiness, I almost think there is no wisdom comparable to that of exchanging what is called the realities of life 
for dreams old castles old pictures old histories and the babble of old people make one live back into centuries that cannot disappoint one one holds fast and surely what is past the dead have exhausted their power of deceiving one can trust catherine de medici now in short you have opened a new landscape in my fancy and my lady beaulieu will oblige me as much as you if she puts the long bow into your hands i don't know but the idea may produce some other castle of otranto so walpole came near anticipating the greenwood scenes of ivanhoe the decking and trappings of chivalry filled him with boyish delight and he found in the glitter and colour of the middle ages a refuge from the prosaic dullness of the eighteenth century a visit from quote, a luxembourg a lusignan and a montfort end quote, awoke in his whimsical fancy a mental image of himself in the guise of a medieval baron quote, i never felt myself so much in the castle of otranto it sounded as if a company of noble crusaders were come to sojourn with me before they embarked for the holy land end quote and when he heard of the marvellous adventures of a large wolf who had caused panic in lower langdoch he was reminded of the enchanted monster of old romance and declared that had he known of the creature earlier it should have appeared in the castle of otranto i have taken to astronomy he declares on another occasion quote, now that the scale is enlarged enough to satisfy my taste who love gigantic ideas do not be afraid i am not going to write a second part of the castle of otranto nor another account of the patagonians who inhabit the new Brobding nag planet. End quote. These unstudied utterances reveal perhaps more clearly than Walpole's deliberate confessions about his book the mood of irresponsible, light-hearted gaiety in which he started on his enterprise. If we may rely on Walpole's account of its composition, the castle of Otranto was fashioned rapidly while in a white heat of excitement, but the creation of the story probably cost him more effort than he would have us believe. The result, at least, lacks spontaneity. We never feel for a moment that we are living invisible amidst the characters, but we sit aloof like Puck, thinking, Lord, what fools these mortals be! His supernatural machinery is as undignified as the pantomime properties of Jack the Giant Killer, the huge body scattered piecemeal about the castle, the unwieldy sabre borne by a hundred men, the helmet tempestuously agitated, and even the skeleton in a hermit's cowl, are not only unalarming but mildly ridiculous yet to the readers of his day the story was captivating and entrancing it satisfied a real craving for the romantic and marvellous the first edition of five hundred copies was sold out in two months and others followed rapidly the story was dramatised by robert jefferson and produced at covent garden theatre under the title the count of narbon with an epilogue by malone it was staged again later in dublin kemble playing the title role it was translated into french german and italian in england its success was immediate though several years elapsed before it was imitated gray to whom the story was first attributed wrote of it in march seventeen sixty five it engages our attention here open bracket, at cambridge close bracket, makes some of us cry a little and all in general afraid to go to better nights End quote mason praised it and walpole's letters refer repeatedly to the vogue it enjoyed the widespread popularity is an indication of the eagerness with which the readers of seventeen sixty five desired to escape from the present and to revel for a time in strange bygone centuries although walpole regarded the composition of his gothic story as a whim his love of the past was shared by others of his generation of this macpherson's ossian 
1760-63, Kurd's Letters on Chivalry and Romance, 1762, and Percy's Relics, 1765, are each in its fashion a sufficient proof. The half-century from 1760 to 1810 showed remarkably definite signs of a renewed interest in things written between 1100 and 1650, which had been neglected for a century or more. The Castle of Otranto, which was, quote, an attempt to blend the marvellous of old story with the natural of modern novels, end quote, is an early symptom of this revulsion to the past, and it exercised a charm on Scott, as well as on Mrs. Radcliffe and her school. The Castle of Otranto is significant not because of its intrinsic merit, but because of its power in shaping the destiny of the novel. The outline of the plot is worth recording for the sake of tracing ancestral likenesses when we reach the later romances. The only son of Manfred, the villain of the piece, is discovered on his wedding morning dashed to pieces beneath an enormous helmet. Determined that his line shall not become extinct, Manfred decides to divorce Hippolyta and marry Isabella, his son's bride. To escape from her pursuer, Isabella takes flight down a subterranean passage, where she is succoured by a peasant, Theodore, who bears a curious resemblance to a portrait of the good Alfonso, in the gallery of the castle. The servants of the castle are alarmed at intervals by the sudden appearance of massive pieces of armour in different parts of the building. A clap of thunder which shakes the castle to its foundations heralds the culmination of the story. A hundred men bear in a huge sabre, and an apparition of the illustrious Alfonso, whose portrait in the gallery once walks straight out of its frame, appears, quote, dilated to an immense magnitude, end quote, and demands that Manfred shall surrender Otranto to the rightful heir, Theodore, who has been duly identified by the mark of a bloody arrow. Alfonso, thus pacified, ascends into heaven, where he is received in glory by St. Nicholas. As Matilda, who was beloved of Theodore, has incidentally been slain by her father, Theodore consoles himself with Isabella. Manfred and his wife meekly retire to neighbouring convents. With this anticlimax, the story closes present the dry bones of a romantic story is often misleading, but the method is perhaps justifiable in the case of the Castle of Otranto, because Walpole himself scorned embellishments and declared, in his grandiloquent fashion, if this air of the miraculous is excused, the reader will find nothing else unworthy of his perusal. There is no bombast, no similes, flowers, digressions, or unnecessary descriptions. Everything tends directly to the catastrophe. End quote. But with all its faults, the castle of Otranto did not fall fruitless on the earth. The characters are mere puppets, yet we meet the same types again and again in later Gothic romances. Though Clara Reeve renounced such obvious improbabilities as a ghost in a hermit's cowl and a walking picture, she was an acknowledged disciple of Walpole, and like him made an interesting peasant the hero of her story, the old English baron. Jerome is the prototype of many a count disguised as father confessor, Bianca, the pattern of many a chattering servant, the imprisoned wife reappears in countless romances, including Mrs. Radcliffe's Sicilian Romance, 1790, and Mrs. Roche's Children of the Abbey, 1798. The tyrannical father, no new creation, however, became so inevitable a figure in fiction that Jane Austen had to reassure her readers that Mr. Morland was, quote, not in the least addicted to locking up his daughters, end quote, and Miss Martha Buskbody the mantua-maker of Ganderkloch, whom Jedediah Cleishbotham ingeniously called on to aid in writing the conclusion of old mortality, assured him, 
as the fruit of her experience in reading through the stock of three circulating libraries that in a novel young people may fall in love without the countenance of their parents quote, because it is essential to the necessary intricacy of the story end quote but apart from his characters who are so colourless that they hardly hold our attention walpole bequeathed to his successors a remarkable collection of useful properties the background of his story is a gothic castle singularly unenchanted it is true but capable of being invested by mrs radcliffe with mysterious grandeur otranto contains underground vaults ill-fitting doors with rusty hinges easily extinguished lamps and a trap-door objects trivial and insignificant in walpole's hands but fraught with terrible possibilities otranto would have fulfilled admirably the requirements of barrett's cherubina who when looking for lodgings demanded to the indignation of a maid-servant who came to the door old pictures tapestry a spectre and creaking hinges scott writing in eighteen twenty one remarks quote, the apparition of the skeleton hermit to the prince of vicenza was long accounted a masterpiece of the horrible but of late the valley of jehoshaphat could hardly supply the dry bones necessary for the exhibition of similar spectres but cherubina whose palate was jaded by a surfeit of the pungent horrors of walpole's successes would probably have found the castle of otranto an insipid romance and would have lamented that he did not make more effective use of his supernatural machinery his story offered hints and suggestions to those whose greater gifts turned the materials he had marshalled to better account and he is to be honoured rather for what he instigated others to perform than for what he actually accomplished himself the castle of otranto was not intended as a serious contribution to literature but will always survive in literary history as the ancestor of a thriving race of romances more than ten years before the publication of the castle of otranto smollett in his adventures of ferdinand count fathom had chanced upon the devices employed later in the tale of terror the tremors of fear to which his rascally hero is subjected lend the spice of alarm to what might have been but a monotonous record of villainy smollett depicts skilfully the imaginary terrors created by darkness and solitude as the count travels through the forest quote, the darkness of the night the silence and solitude of the place the indistinct images of the trees that appeared on every side stretching their extravagant arms athwart the gloom conspired with the dejection of spirits occasioned by his loss to disturb his fancy and raise strange phantoms in his imagination although he was not naturally superstitious his mind began to be invaded with an awful horror that gradually prevailed over all the consolations of reason and philosophy nor was his heart free from the terrors of assassination in order to dissipate these agreeable reveries he had recourse to the conversation of his guide by whom he was entertained with the history of diverse travellers who had been robbed and murdered by ruffians whose retreat was in the recesses of that very wood the sighing of the trees thunder and flashes of lightning add to the horror of a journey which resembles mrs radcliffe's description of emily's approach to adolfo when count fathom takes refuge in a robber's hut he discovers in his room which has no bolt on the inside of the door the body of a recently murdered man concealed beneath some bundles of straw effecting his escape by placing the corpse in his own bed to deceive the robbers the count is mistaken for a phantom by the old woman who waits upon him in carrying out his designs upon Celinda, the count aggravates her natural timidity by relating dismal stories of omens and apparitions and then groans piteously outside her door and causes 
the mysterious music of an Atolian harp to sound upon the midnight air. Selinda sleeps too, like the ill-starred heroine of the novel of terror, quote, at the end of a long gallery, scarce within hearing of any other inhabited part of the house. End quote. The scene at the end of Count Fathom, in which Rinaldo, at midnight, visits, as he thinks, the tomb of Monomia, is surrounded with circumstances of gloom and mystery. Quote, the uncommon darkness of the night, the solemn silence and lonely situation of the place conspired with the occasion of his coming, and the dismal images of his fancy, to produce a real rapture of gloomy expectation. The clock struck twelve, the owl screeched from the ruined battlement, the door was opened by the sexton who, by the light of a glimmering taper, conducted the despairing lover to a dreary aisle. End quote. As he watches again on a second night, his ear was suddenly invaded with the sound of some few solemn notes issuing from the organ, which seemed to feel the impulse of an invisible hand. Reason shrunk before the thronging ideas of his fancy, which represented this music as the prelude to something strange and supernatural. End quote. The figure of a woman, arrayed in a flowing robe and veil, approaches and proves to be Monimia in the flesh. Although Smollett precedes Walpole in point of time, he is in these scenes nearer in spirit to Adolfo than Otranto. His use of terror, however, is merely incidental. He strays inadvertently into the history of Gothic romance. The suspicions and forebodings with which Smollett plays occasionally upon the nerves of his readers become part of the ordinary routine in the tale of terror. Clara Reeve's Gothic story, first issued under the title The Champion of Virtue, but later as The Old English Baron, was published in 1777, twelve years after Walpole's Castle of Otranto, of which, as she herself asserted, it was the literary offspring. By eliminating all supernatural incidents save one ghost, she sought to bring her story, quote, within the utmost verge of probability, end quote. Walpole, perhaps displeased, by the slighting references in the preface to some of the more extraordinary incidents in his novel, received the old English baron with disdain, describing it as totally void of imagination and interest. His strictures are unjust. There are certainly no wild flights of fancy in Clara Rees's story, but, but an even level of interest is maintained throughout. Her style is simple and refreshingly free from affectation. The plot is neither rapid nor exhilarating, but it never actually stagnates. Like Walpole's Gothic story, the Old English Baron is supposed to be a transcript from an ancient manuscript. The period, we are assured, is that of the minority of Henry VI, but despite an elaborately described tournament, we never really leave 18th century England. Edmund Twyford, the reputed son of a cottager, is befriended by a benevolent baron, Fitzowen, but, through his good fortune and estimable qualities, excites the envy of Fitzowen's nephews and his eldest son. To prove the courage of Edmund, who has been basely slandered by his enemies, the Baron asks him to spend three nights in the haunted apartments of the castle. Up to this point, there has been nothing to differentiate the story from an uneventful domestic novel. The ghost is of the mechanical variety and does not inspire awe when he actually appears, but Miss Reeve tries to prepare our minds for the shock before she introduces him. The rusty locks and the sudden extinction of the lamp are a heritage from Walpole, but the hollow rustling noise and the glimmering light, naturally explained later by the approach of a servant with a faggot, anticipate Mrs. Radcliffe. Like Adeline, later in the Romance of the Forest, Edmund is haunted by prophetic dreams. The second night, the ghost violently clashes his armour, but still remains concealed. 
the third night dismal groans are heard the ghost does not deign to appear in person until the baron's nephews watch and then quote, all the doors flew open a pale glimmering light appeared at the door from the staircase and a man in complete armour entered the room he stood with one hand extended pointing to the outward door End quote. it is to vindicate the rights of this departed spirit that sir ralph harclay challenges sir walter lovell to a quote, medieval end quote, tournament before the story closes edmund is identified as the owner of castle lovell and is married to lady emma fitzowen's daughter the narration of the unusual circumstances connected with his birth takes some time as the foster parents suffer from what is described by writers on psychology as total recall and are unable to select the salient details the characters are rather dim and indistinct the shadowiest of all being emma who has no personality at all and is a mere complement to the immaculate edmund's happiness the good and bad are sharply distinguished there are no doubtful cases and consequently there is no difficulty in distributing appropriate rewards and punishment at the close of the story the whole quote, furnishing a striking lesson to posterity of the overruling hand of providence and the certainty of retribution End quote. clara reeve was fifty-two years of age when she published her gothic story and she writes in the spirit of a maiden aunt striving to edify as well as to entertain the younger generation when edmund takes fitzowen to the fatal closet and the bones of his murdered father he considers the scene quote, too solemn for a lady to be present at end quote, and his love-making is as frigid as the supernatural scenes the hero is young in years but has no youthful ardour the very ghost is manipulated in a half-hearted fashion and fails to produce the slightest thrill the natural inclination of the authoress was probably towards domestic fiction with a didactic intention and she attempted a medieval setting as a tour de force in emulation of walpole's castle of otranto the hero whose birth is enshrouded in mystery the restless ghost groaning for the vindication of rights the historical background the archaic spelling of the challenge are all ineffective fumblings towards the romantic the old english baron is an unambitious work but it has a certain hold upon our attention because of its limpidity of style it can be read without discomfort and even with a mild degree of interest simply as a story while the castle of otranto is only tolerable as a literary curiosity a tragedy edmund orphan of the castle seventeen ninety nine was founded upon the story with the suggestion of a friend which was translated into french in eighteen hundred miss reeve informs the public in a preface to a late edition of the old english baron that in compliance with the suggestion of a friend she had composed castle connor and irish story in which apparitions were introduced the manuscript of this tale was unfortunately lost not even a mouldering fragment has been rescued from an ebony cabinet in a deserted chamber of an ancient abbey and we are left wondering whether the ghost spoke with a brogue when walpole wrote disparagingly of clara reeve's imitation of his gothic story he singled out for praise a fragment which he attributes to mrs barbauld the story to which he alludes is evidently the unfinished sir bertrand which is contained in one of the volumes entitled miscellaneous pieces in prose published jointly by j and a l aiken in 1773 and preceded by an essay on the pleasure derived from objects of terror lee hunt who reprinted sir bertrand which had impressed him very strongly in his boyhood in his book for a corner 1849 ascribes the authorship of the tale to dr aiken commenting on the fact that he was quote, a writer from whom this effusion was hardly to be looked for end quote. 
it is probably safe to assume that walpole who was a contemporary of the aikens and took a lively interest in the literary gossip of the day was right in assigning sir bertrand to miss aiken afterwards mrs barbauld though the story is not included in the works of anne letitia barbauld edited by miss lucy aiken in eighteen twenty five that the minds of the aikens were exercised about the sources of pleasure in romance especially when connected with horror and distress is clear not only from this essay and the illustrative fragment but also from other essays and stories in the same collection on romances and imitation and an inquiry into those kinds of distress which excite agreeable sensations in the preliminary essay to sir bertrand an attempt is made to explain why terrible scenes excite pleasurable emotions and to distinguish between two types of horror as illustrated by the castle of otranto which unites the marvellous and the terrible and by a scene of mere natural horror in smollett's count fathom the story sir bertram is an attempt to combine the two kinds of horror in one composition a knight wandering in darkness on a desolate and dreary moor hears the tolling of a bell and guided by a glimmering light finds an antique mansion with turrets at the corners as he approaches the porch the light glides away all is dark and still the light reappears and the bell tolls as sir bertrand enters the castle the door closes behind him a bluish flame leads him up a staircase till he comes to a wide gallery and a second staircase where the light vanishes he grasps a dead cold hand which he severs from the wrist with his sword the blue flame now leads him to a vault where he sees the owner of the hand quote, completely armed thrusting forwards the bloody stump of an arm with a terrible frown and menacing gesture and brandishing a sword in the remaining hand End quote. when attacked the figure vanishes leaving behind a massive iron key which unlocks a door leading to an apartment containing a coffin and statues of black marble attired in moorish costume holding enormous sabres in their right hands as the knight enters each of them rears an arm and advances a leg and at the same moment the lid of the coffin opens and the bell tolls sir bertrand guided by the flames approaches the coffin from which a lady in a shroud and a black veil rises when he kisses her the whole building falls asunder with a crash sir bertrand is thrown into a trance and awakes in a gorgeous room where he sees a beautiful lady who thanks him as her deliverer at a banquet nymphs place a laurel wreath on his head but as the lady is about to address him the fragment breaks off the architecture of the castle with its gallery staircase and subterranean vaults closely resembles that of walpole's gothic structure the enormous sabres too are familiar to readers of the castle of otranto the gliding light disquieting at the outset of the story but before the close familiar groan is doomed to be the guide of many a distressed wanderer through the gothic labyrinths of later romances mrs bubble chose her properties with admirable discretion but lacked the art to use them cunningly a toiling bell heard in the silence and darkness of a lonely moor will quicken the beatings of the heart but employed as a prompter's signal to herald the advance of a group of black statues is only absurd after the grimly suggestive opening the story gradually loses its power as it proceeds and the happy ending which wings our thoughts back to the sleeping beauty of childhood is wholly incongruous if the fragment had ended abruptly at the moment when the lady arises in her shroud from the coffin sir bertrand would have been a more effective tale of terror from the historical point of view mrs barbauld's curious patchwork is full of interest she seems to be reaching out wistfully towards the mysterious and unknown genuinely anxious to awaken a thrill of excitement in the breast of her reader she is hesitating and uncertain as to the best way of winning her effect 
she is but a pioneer in the art of freezing the blood and it were idle to expect that she should rush boldly into a forest of horrors naturally she prefers to follow the tracks trodden by walpole and smollett but with intuitive foresight she seems to have realised the limitations of walpole's marvellous machinery and to have attempted to explore the regions of the fearful unknown her opening scene works on that instinctive terror of the dark and the unseen upon which mrs radcliffe bases many of her most moving incidents among the poetical sketches of blake written between seventeen sixty eight and seventeen seventy seven and published in seventeen eighty three there appears an extraordinary poem written in blank verse but divided into quatrains and entitled fair eleanor this juvenile production seems to indicate that blake was familiar with walpole's gothic story the heroine wandering disconsolately by night in the castle's vaults a place of refuge first rendered fashionable by isabella in the castle of otranto faints with horror thinking that she beholds her husband's ghost but soon fancy returns and now she thinks of bones and grinning skulls and corruptible death wrapped in his shroud and now fancies she hears deep sighs and sees pale sickly ghosts gliding End quote. a reality more horrible than her imaginings awaits her her bleeding head is abruptly thrust into her arms by an assassin in the employ of a villainous and anonymous duke fair eleanor retires to bed and gives utterance to an outburst of similes in praise of her dead lord thus encouraged the bloody head of her murdered husband describes its lurid past and warns eleanor to beware of the duke's dark designs eleanor wisely avoids the machinations of the villain and brings an end to the poem by breathing her last blake's story is faintly reminiscent of the popular legend of anne boleyn who with her bleeding head in her lap is said to ride down the avenue of blicking park once a year in a hearse drawn by horsemen and accompanied by attendants all headless out of respect for their mistress blake's youthful excursion into the murky gloom of gothic vaults resulted in a poem so crude that even monk lewis who was no connoisseur would have declined it regretfully as a contribution to his tales of terror but fair eleanor is worthy of remembrance as an early indication of walpole's influence which was to become so potent on the history of the gothic romance the gothic experiments of dr nathan drake published in his literary hours seventeen ninety eight are extremely instructive as indicating the critical standpoint of the time drake like mrs barbauld and her brother was deeply interested in the sources of the pleasure derived from the tales of terror and wrote his gothic stories to confirm and illustrate the theories propounded in his essays he discusses gravely and learnedly the kinds of fictitious horror that excite agreeable sensations and then proceeds to arrange carefully calculated effects designed to alarm his readers but not to outrage their sense of decorum he has none of the reckless daring of monk lewis who flung restraint to the winds and raced in mad career through an orgy of horrors in his enchanted castles we are disturbed by an uneasy suspicion that the inhabitants are merely allegorical characters and that the spectre of a moral lurks in some dim recesses ready to spring upon us suddenly dr drake's mind was as a house divided against itself he was a moralist emulating the sage and serious spencer in his desire to exalt virtue and abase vice he was a critic working out with calm detachment practical illustrations of the theories he had formulated and he was a romantic enthusiast imbued with a vague but genuine admiration for the wild superstitions of a bygone age his stories exhibit painful evidence of the conflict which waged between the three sides of his nature 
In the essay prefixed to Henry Fitzowen, A Gothic Tale, he distinguishes between the two species of Gothic superstition, the gloomy and the sportive, and addresses an ode to the two goddesses of superstition, one the offspring of fear and midnight, the other of Hesper and the moon. In his story, the spectres of darkness are put to flight by a troop of aerial spirits. Drake knew the Gothic stories of Walpole, Mrs. Barbold, Clara Reeve, and Mrs. Radcliffe, and traces of the influence of each may be found in his work. Henry Fitzowen loves Adeline de Montfort, but has a powerful and diabolical rival, Walleran, whose character combines the most dangerous qualities of Mrs. Radcliffe's villains with the magical gifts of a wizard. Fitzowen, not long before the day fixed for his wedding, is led astray while hunting by an elusive stag, a spectral monk, and a wandering fire, and arrives home in a thunderstorm to find his castle enveloped in total darkness and two of his servants stretched dead at his feet. He learns from his mother and sister, who are shut in a distant room, that Adeline has been carried off by armed ruffians. Believing Walleran to be responsible for this outrage, Fitzowen sets out the next day in search of him. After weary wanderings, he is beguiled into a gothic castle by a foul witch, who resembles one of Spencer's loathy hags, and on his entrance he hears peals of diabolical laughter. He sees spectres, blue lights, and the corpse of horror herself. When he slays Walleran, the enchantments disappear. At the end of a winding passage, he finds a cavern illuminated by a globe of light and discovers Adeline asleep on a couch. He awakens her with a kiss. Thunder shakes the earth, a raging whirlwind tears the castle from its foundations, and the lovers awake from their trance in a beautiful moonlit vale, where they hear enchanting music and see knights, nymphs, and spirits. A beauteous queen tells them that the spirits of the blessed have freed them from horror's dread agents. The music dies away, the spirits flee, and the lovers find themselves in a country road. A story of the same type is told by de la Motte-Fouque in The Field of Terror. Before the steadfast courage of the labourer who strives to till the field, diabolical enchantments disappear. It is an ancient legend turned into moral allegory. In the essay on Objects of Terror, which precedes Montmorency, a fragment, Drake discusses that type of terror which is, quote, excited by the inference of a simple material causation, end quote, and which, quote, requires no small degree of skill and arrangement to prevent its operating more pain than pleasure, end quote. He condemns Walpole's mysterious mother on the ground that the catastrophe is only productive of horror and aversion, and regards the old ballad Edward as intolerable to any person of sensibility, but praises Dante and Shakespeare for keeping within the, quote, bounds of salutary and grateful pleasure, end quote. The scene in the Italian, where Shadoni, about to plunge a dagger into Elena's bosom, recoils in the belief that he has discovered her to be his own daughter, is commended as, quote, appalling yet delighting the reader, end quote. In the productions of Mrs. Radcliffe, quote, the Shakespeare of romance writers, who to the wild landscape of Salvator Rosa has added the softer graces of a Claude, end quote, he declares, quote, may be found many scenes truly terrific in their conception, yet so softened down, and the mind so much relieved by the intermixture of beautiful description or pathetic incident, that the impression of the whole never becomes too strong, never degenerates into horror, but pleasurable emotion is ever the predominating result. End quote. The famous scene in Ferdinand Count Fathom, the description of danger in Collins's Ode to Fear, the Scottish ballad Heidi Knut, are mentioned as admirable examples of fear excited by natural causes. In the fragment called Montmorency, Drake aims at combining quote, picturesque description with some of those objects of terror which are independent of supernatural agency. End quote. As the curfew tolls sullenly, Henry de Montmorency 
and his two attendants rush from a castle into the darkness of a stormy night they hurry through a savage glen in which a swollen torrent falls over a precipice after hearing the crash of falling armour they suddenly come upon a dying knight on whose pale features every mark of horror is depicted led by frightful screams of distress montmorency and his men find a maiden who has been captured by banditti montmorency slays the leader but is seized by the rest of the banditti and bound to a tree overlooking a stupendous chasm into which he is to be hurled by almost superhuman struggles he effects his escape when suddenly there at this terror-fraught moment the fragment wisely ends in the abbey of clunedale drake experiments feebly and ineffectively with the explained supernatural in which mrs radcliffe was an adept the ruined abbey deemed to be haunted is visited at night as an act of penance by a man named clifford who in a fit of unfounded jealousy has slain his wife's brother clifford accompanied by his sister and bearing a light kneels at his wife's tomb and is mistaken for a spectral being the gothic tale entitled sir egbert is based on an ancient legend associated with one of the turrets of rochester castle sir egbert searching for his friend conrad who had disappeared in suspicious circumstances hears from the knights templars that the wicked constable is believed to hold two lovers in a profound death-like sleep he resolves to make an attempt to draw from its sheath the sword which separates them so as to restore them to life and liberty undismayed by the fate of those who have fallen in this quest sir egbert enters the castle where he is entertained at a gorgeous feast when the festivities are at their height and sir egbert has momentarily forgotten his enterprise a terrible shriek is heard the revellers vanish and sir egbert is left alone to face a spectral corpse which beckons him onward to a vault where in flaming characters are inscribed the words death to him who violates the mysteries of gondolf's tower nothing daunted sir egbert amid execrations of fiends encounters delusive horrors and at last unsheathes the sword the lovers awake and the whole apparatus of enchantment vanishes conrad tells how he and bertha six years before had been lured by a wandering fire to a luxurious cavern where they drank a magic potion the story closes with the marriage of conrad and bertha and of egbert and matilda a sister of one of the other victims of the same enchanter in dr drake's stories are patiently collected all the heirlooms necessary for the full equipment of a gothic castle massive doors which sway ponderously on their hinges or are forcibly burst open and which invariably close with a resounding crash dark eerie galleries broken staircases decayed apartments mouldering floors toiling bells skeletons corpses howling spectres all are there but the possessor overwhelmed by the very profusion which surrounds him is at a loss how to make use of them he does not realise the true significance of a half-stifled groan or an unearthly yell heard in the darkness each new horror indeed seems to but put new life into the heart of the redoubtable sir egbert who like spencer's gallant knights advances from triumph to triumph vanquishing evil at every step it is impossible to become absorbed in his personages who have less body than his spectres and whose adventures take the form of a walk through an exhibition of horrors mechanically set in motion to prove their prowess dr drake seems happier when the hideous beings are put to rout and the transformation scene which places fairyland before us suddenly descends on the stage yet the bungling attempts of dr drake are interesting as showing that grave and critical minds were prepared to consider the tale of terror as a legitimate form of literature obeying certain definite rules of its own and aiming at the excitement of a pleasurable fear the seed of the gothic story sown at random by horace walpole had by seventeen ninety eight taken firm root in the soil drake's enthusiasm for gothic story 
was associated with his love for older English poetry and with his interest in Scandinavian mythology. He was a genuine admirer of Spencer and attempted imitations in modern diction of old ballads. It is for his bent towards the romantic rather than for his actual accomplishments that Drake is worthy of remembrance. End of chapter 2 Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia